from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, co-hosting today from Nashville, Tennessee. On today's edition, Google's carbon strategy, a requiem for coal, our search for tomorrow's promising leaders, and virtual reality meets sustainability. We're here, but not really. This week on 350. It's April 15th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm in Nashville, as I said, and uh, back at our headquarters, Green Biz headquarters at 350 Frankagawa Plaza is Green Biz senior editor Lauren Hepler. Hello, Lauren. How is it there today? Good, good. How are you doing? Any like barbecue, fun things going in Nashville? <laughs> well, I did get to hear some great rockabilly uh, music uh, last night on Lower Broad, which is the strip where uh, all the cool stuff is hanging out. And I did eat one pig part that I didn't really shouldn't talk about, but uh, <laughs> never had before. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I'm here um, part of our East Coast swing. I was in New York uh, the last couple of days and, and then uh, Nashville and then on to D.C., um, uh, to uh, keynote a uh, sustainability conference at Lipscomb University here in Nashville. Now, uh, I first heard of Lipscomb uh, about seven years ago when I first keynoted this conference. Uh, it's a um, small a faith-based uh, college, about 3,000 students in Nashville. It uh, goes back to uh, 1891. Um, and uh, they have a robust sustainability program, and, and every year they bring together uh, uh, the community uh, of students and and businesses and public officials and others uh, and and have uh, they've they've brought in uh, people like uh, Hunter Lovins and uh, uh, Janine Benyus and a bunch of others to keynote and so I guess they're going back around because this is my second time but it's really interesting to see what's going on here in Nashville because they're there's a, a lot happening around uh, resilience and and transit issues and city issues and uh, renewable energy and all the battles that we see everywhere in the you know and, and challenges that we see everywhere in the country are happening right here in Nashville. Mm, who knew? I'm going to start hitting you up for dispatches from the places you travel to now. Yeah, well, I've uh, I've got some from Tennessee there right now, so we can maybe it'll come up later in the show. But uh, right now, let's get, as we always do at the top of the show, into the Week in Review. There is no shortage of energy news this week uh, on sort of both ends of the carbon spectrum. On one hand, we had the coal titan Peabody officially filing for bankruptcy. And on the other end, you have the solar industry, one of the leading lights, Sun Edison, sort of teetering on the bank of bankruptcy at the very same time. As our columnist David Crane, obviously the former CEO of independent power producer NRG Energy, pointed out in a column this week, not only is that a extraordinary coincidence, uh, it, it's also sort of an interesting microcosm of what's going on in this very transitional time in the energy industry. Yeah, uh, David, uh, you know, I guess all of us knew about the impending uh, bankruptcy, which happened on Tuesday, but on Monday... Uh, David had written this great piece, uh, sort of a, a, a requiem uh, for uh, Peabody and uh, rebirth. He believes for for Sun Edison, um, and you know it's just interesting. I mean, he you know he's really become, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that he was fired from NRG is sort of this uh, very outspoken uh, advocate of renewables and about getting out of fossil fuels. Um, and he tells the story of why he thinks uh, Peabody had to go through what it's going through and and why uh, Sun Edison is uh, is only a reset. It, well, one is fatal, uh, the coal is fatal and, and the solar uh, is, is kind of a reset. And, you know, they got a little bit uh, ahead of their skis uh, in a certain sort of way financially. Um, and but it's not. Uh, doesn't mean the death of solar in the same way that Peabody means the death of coal. 
Seeking Alpha actually had an interesting point on Sun Edison. They actually used the now infamous phrase, too big to fail, sort of saying there's there's way too much at risk for Sun Edison to completely go under. So again, they haven't officially filed for bankruptcy yet, and we need to wait and see how that played out plays out. But another thing that struck me about David's piece was sort of um, pushing back on the sort of half-hearted reinvention that that Peabody attempted with the whole clean coal movement. And he talks about sort of a big PR campaign that was undertaken. Um, And I think it raises some interesting questions that we're also going to have to confront with other sort of like bridge fuels like fracking and natural gas. And, And again, to see sort of how we get from the fossil fuel powered energy system of today to a very, very different landscape with the renewables that are coming online, but obviously not at the scale to to just jump, flip a switch and jump from one to the other. Yeah. And also carbon sequestration is, you know, where do you do that? Do you do it before you burn the coal or can you do it afterwards? Is there an opportunity to still use coal in some fashion in a deep, in a a carbon sequestered sort of way, you know, that that was the promise of clean coal, which, you know, I think even the coal industry really, you know, deep down, or maybe not even deep down, knew that it was uh, just something that they were doing to buy time. Uh, but this is, uh, you know, that, that that was never really viable, the idea of clean coal. But there is some, there are some cleaner coal technologies. And I think, you know, they, uh, they've yet to be proven. And it, the question is whether the clock will run out on coal altogether, you know, it used to be, you know, 50 or 60 percent of the portfolio for American uh, power electricity generation now, I think it's around 20, 25 or maybe 28 percent and and declining quickly. And, uh, you know, it's winding down. And I think everybody knows that. And the question is, are there any technologies that can save it or do we just let it go away? Mm -hmm. This is definitely sort of a very extreme example of sort of the pressure that companies in a lot of industries are under to reinvent their business models for a climate-constrained world. Uh, This is probably example A in that pursuit. Um, The other thing it brings up is this issue that we've been talking about for a couple years now at least, which is stranded assets or sort of the role the financial sector could be playing in forcing the issue of business model transformation. Um, So coal is obviously... Uh, one of those areas where there's increasing pressure to sort of keep those carbon intensive assets in the ground. And the question is whether we'll see more of that with oil and other natural resources as well. That is the multi-billion, if not trillion dollar question. But speaking of in the ground, you wrote this great piece about uh, the Internet of Soil this week uh, and sort of how we're applying uh, the Internet of Things to, uh, well, just uh, the, uh, a few few inches or a few feet underground in, in the quest for intelligent agriculture, a resilient, regenerative, smart agriculture. Um, tell us about that. So I know it's a little corny at this point. There's an Internet of Everything. Corny, but, good. I like that. that was yeah, very, two well jokes in one. I thought you would like that. Yeah. Uh, but so this is, uh, I focused on one company, a, a Silicon Valley startup called CropX. They have the Silicon Valley connection is that they were initially funded by former Google CEO Eric Schmidt through his uh, investment firm Innovation Endeavors. Um, but what they do is... What it's really interesting for the future of the Internet of Things, that whole space, is that it's a combination of hardware and software. So you have this physical sensor that you stick in the ground. And the founder actually told me, um, his name is Isaac Bentwich, that you actually only need about three sensors for every 125 acres of farmland. So not a super hardware intensive operation. They cost about $380 a pop. Um, so once you get a field wired, then you can subscribe for about $200 a year, um, to this analytics suite. And that sucks up the data that's being generated by these sensors. Um, and the goal is to sort of measure the, uh, precise conditions at different parts of a field. So you're not just blanket irrigating and wasting water and also potentially stunting your crop productivity, but really tailoring the way you farm to the conditions on the ground. Yeah, literally on the ground. And the part of the goal is how do you, how do we farm in a, in a way that not only uh, it doesn't deplete the soil, topsoil the way we have been doing with industrial agriculture, not only doesn't uh, pollute the water through runoff of chemicals, not only doesn't uh, increase uh, greenhouse gas emissions 
uh, through uh, the depletion of, of resources into the atmosphere and, and the use of fossil fuels. But how do we create this in a regenerative way that sequesters carbon, improves the soil, and cleans the water? And this is the kind of technology that we're going to need. And I have to say that that $300, $380 soil monitoring device, I bet in two or three years is, is, is under $100, if not under $50 or $10. These things are going to get you know, literally cheaper by the dozen. The interesting thing is that uh, some of the large corporate uh, hardware manufacturers are also sort of trying to jump into the sensor space in the agriculture field. So two of the investors that came on board for CropEx uh, were Bosch, which is the big German multinational that is maybe best known for manufacturing automotive parts. And Flex, which is formerly Flextronics, a big electronics manufacturer based down in Silicon Valley. So both of them have put some money into CropEx. It will be interesting to see if they really do have long-term ambitions in the agricultural space or if they're using that as sort of a testing ground for the sensors and the hardware that they need to deploy Internet of Things solutions elsewhere. And I'm sure Flex, which is a contract manufacturer, which has helped to drive down the cost of so many of our electronic components and and technologies is you know sees is going to be the you know the one who brings this to scale that gets that three hundred eighty dollar price tag way way down into uh, you know two figures and and makes this stuff so cheap and ubiquitous that uh, the the value proposition becomes on the data subscription and they'll get better uh, higher and higher ability to crunch the data provide more real time information and the and the money comes not from selling sensors but from selling data there's also the question of how other large food companies, PepsiCo is one that came up in my conversation with CropEx, could help to speed up the deployment of these sorts of technologies if some of these companies get really aggressive about uh, expanding the use of these sorts of sensors in their supply chains. That could definitely be a game changer in terms of both broader adoption and sort of the cost concerns you're talking about. Uh, Monsanto's also been very active in this space, acquiring, acquiring a company called the Climate Corporation a couple of years back. Um, but that's not all food companies have been up to recently. This week, our senior writer, Mike Hauer, took a look at the future of sustainability metrics. And he focused specifically on how a couple of companies like Kellogg and Mars are using specific climate science to set their sustainability goals. Yeah, I mean, this feels like we're being super geeky this week here with all these tech and metrics talk, but that's is where so much of this profession has gone. Um, you know, this whole idea of science-based goals is one that we've called out in the past in our State of Green Business report. And, you know, how do you create goals that not only are ambitious, not only, you know, move the needle within your company, but are big enough to to make a difference in terms of the, the scale and speed and scope of what needs to happen on the planet. In other words, how do, how do you make sure that the goals you set uh, are uh, result in your doing your fair share of, you know, based on how much your company contributes to the problem? And that's what a whole range of companies, Kellogg's, P&G, Coca-Cola, Dell, Sony, GM, and others are now doing. And uh, you know, we had this webcast um, earlier this week, or was that, I'm sorry, last week. <laughs> I lost track uh, looking at, at, at this question of how companies are are really doing this now and not just talking about it, but really you know, making that change from setting goals to setting science-based targets. You know, it is funny, though. I, I think I've had a couple conversations with sources about this, how it's so ironic that we even need a buzzword of science-based goals, because like, what else do you use to set your goals? But it does represent a major shift. And I think a good example of that that Mike points out in his piece is sort of how companies are trying to drill down into global water risks, because that's something that at a high level, yeah, we hear over and over that a lot of places lack sustainable access to clean water. And um, Mike talks about how companies are now looking to drill down into the specifics of sort of this massive overarching issue. Um, you've got Intel, for example, looking at some advanced mapping technology and developing metrics around water scarcity. So it's not only sort of how you measure the problem, but then how you visualize it and come up with a strategy to act on it. Right. And, and unlike climate uh, emissions, all water is local, and, and which is to say that the solutions and the targets and the technologies that you need to address them are based on uh, the, the local water system, the local recharge rate, the local rainfall, the climate. 
um, the in, intensive use uh, by you know who's who's using it for what is it a lot of agricultural use or chip fabrication plants and it's going to be very different in Arizona than say Alberta Canada and so uh, this is where uh, the the science and the technology and the you know really needs to be very sharp and make sure that we're not just you know doing things random acts of greenness as I like to call it but actually you know doing what needs to be done. So one of the things I mentioned at the top of the show was uh, something about young professionals and leaders, um, and it brings up something that I have wanted to do for, I have to say, years, which is uh, to create uh, the first ever uh, and hopefully annual uh, Green Biz 30 Under 30 feature, which is you know, who are the probably 20-somethings uh, that we want to select to who represent individuals who are making a difference already in the world of business, sustainable business, whether they're inside a company or outside. So we've just begun that search. Right. So we're looking for any person who's under the age of 30 um, and they can be at an NGO inside of a company, a nonprofit, an academic institution. Um, the, like you said, the goal is just to get somebody who is impacting sustainable business and bonus points if they sort of come at the issue from a systems perspective and are really thinking about major challenges that can impact us down the road. And as just a side note, there is no geographic barrier. We're taking submissions from around the world and you can shoot those over to us by sending an email to submit at greenbiz.com by April 30th. Yeah, and um, by the way, you can uh, nominate yourself. Uh, no, no problems with that. But, you know, tell us uh, the person's name, their affiliation, uh, their date of birth, or at least the month and year, and a few sentences about, you know, what kind of impact you think they're having and why you think they're really uh, sort of on their way to, to being one of our future leaders. Uh, we put this in the newsletter on uh, uh, on this past Monday. We've gotten a uh, I don't know blizzard's the right word, but a steady uh, a steady snowfall of, of of submissions, some great ones, and and yes, from all over the world and from all kinds of sectors, not just business, but people in government and NGOs and maybe even academe who are uh, somehow in, engaged with the the role of business with the business community, uh, having an impact. Um, tell us who you are, and we're going to be honoring them, uh, 30 of them, um, later on this spring, probably late May. Mm -hmm. And one last thing, doesn't matter the size of the organization. We love interesting startups or maybe organizations that are just getting off the ground. If you have a really big idea and you're ambitious in the world of sustainable business, we want to hear from you. So shoot that over to us by April 30th at submit at greenbiz.com and look out for that feature later this spring. So one of the really cool stories we had this week was a primer, a series we like to call Green Biz 101, on an interesting tech topic, virtual reality meets sustainability. So you've probably heard a lot about this technology coming out of places like Oculus Rift, which is owned by Facebook with the crazy futuristic headsets. But joining us now to tell us sort of what the heck all of this has to do with sustainability is senior writer Heather Clancy. So when I pitched this uh, story originally, I got a lot of skepticism. Uh, <laughs> but 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 I thought I thought it was interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, because when, whenever Microsoft is involved with something, you know that they're trying to push it mainstream. Um, but basically, augmented reality and virtual reality, there's part of the same same kind of emerging thread, and they they involve immersive technologies. How you use um, basically these headsets to place your viewpoint into a, an alternate reality, whether that's a, a warehouse or some crazy fantasy world in a game. Um, but that's, that's a basic um, area that I, that I was looking at. And the reason I thought it was so appropriate now is just there has been a slew of activity. There's um, a developer kit out now for the Microsoft HoloLens, which is an augmented reality technology. We can talk about that, what, what that means in a moment. And then, of course, the Facebook Oculus Rift launch. So there, the two really important technologies have been introduced um, in the last couple of weeks. And that's why I thought it was really relevant 
to discuss this now. Definitely. So tell us a little bit more about sort of the specifics of how the technology works and then maybe some of the ways you've come across that it could uh, have anything to do with environment, climate, all that sort of stuff. Right. Right. So virtual reality, I think a lot of people are familiar with the concept from games or or some of these crazy uh, rides at, at different um, amusement parks or uh, or theme parks. But basically, um, as I mentioned before, it, you are immersed in a different world. You put this headset on and you, um, as a human, are walking around in a different place. Um, they've used it actually for um, Game of Thrones to kind of promote the, uh, the being in that world. And um, you walk around and, and whatever you do with your body in, quote, real, the wor- real world is mirrored into the into this fantasy world, that this virtual world. Augmented reality is the thing that really fascinates me. And that is what Microsoft is working on. Augmented reality is kind of a, 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 a it's part of the virtual reality theme and, and concept. But what it does is it adds computer generated information to the real world. So you put this headset on and you see the view of, of your world around you. So for example, a warehouse, you could be standing in a warehouse, you put these headset headsets on. And then when you look around the warehouse, you see additional information that's being fed to the headset via sensors. So you look around the warehouse, you look at a shelf and you can see what inventory is there. You can see, um, you know, in, in the future, you could see potentially Hey, these, these components are from this supplier in this country. So it could, could really, um, have, have relevance for, I think, sourcing conversations. But, but what, what makes these two things different is virtual reality. You're really immersed in this completely different world. Augmented reality is you're, you're layering in computer generated graphics or, or data onto your real, real world view. Mm-hmm. And I saw you you give a couple examples in the story. I think the big retailer Lowe's uh, and Ikea were maybe some of the companies that are getting into this space. Yeah. So there's a few few reasons that I thought this is an uh, applicable sustainability project prod, uh, uh, theme and, and, and that managers should really look at it. Uh, it's, when you talk about Lowe's. Um, what they're doing, what they're doing is using it for prototyping or for envisioning an alternate reality. So if you want to do a kitchen, remodel your kitchen, for example, I, I, I personally have no vision, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you could actually put this headset on and, and pick different cabinets, different countertops, um, and, and, you know, different textures or materials and place them into this space, into this design and see, if you see in quotes, what this might look like for in the future. Um, so you, you could envision and imagine what, what your, uh, what your kitchen would look like okay. when you talk. About, and then yeah. sort of a next step potentially on that, like what you were just talking about, sort of the supply chain angle could be like, I'm thinking about how there are sort of these, some like nutrition labels for consumer products. So maybe, and this, we're not saying this is happening now, but the thought is that potentially Lowe's could add in information to some of this visualization stuff to say like, oh, and by the way, this type of product that you're looking at is more sustainable than this option? Yeah. So you could, I mentioned the sourcing example before you, we've, we've been talking a lot about sensors because they, they would really layer in a, a whole, that they're, they're important for this as well. But being able to quote read maybe through a wireless connection, what a product is telling you. So mm-hmm. something on a shelf might be broadcasting information about its um, shelf life, how, you know, when it's going to expire, where it came from, what, what country, how much water it used. Is this footprint, is this water footprint different from the, the, the product next to it on the shelf? Um, is the energy footprint different? So the, the whole like sort of life, it might broadcast life cycle information about a product. Um, you know, you could extrapolate even further down uh, into product development, right? Even before you get to the warehouse, you could, um, as a, as a designer, pick different materials and see what impact that might have on the overall life cycle, uh, of the product. So if you pick a, a component from this country versus this, this country, this type of wood versus this type of wood, what's the, what's the sustainability factor? So as you're designing, you can do this without actually having to touch the products themselves, right? You can take this information and, and have more and more informed 
design view as well. Mm-hmm. And on the hardware front, it sounds like there are some sort of familiar players, uh, Facebook with Oculus Rift, Microsoft. Yeah. Are there other companies that are ve- developing sort of the, the software or the operating system that you would need for some of these systems? Well, I think a couple of other com- companies to watch will include Google, because if you think about it, this the whole Google Glass project is really an augmented reality project. And what I love about that particular technology is that it's a lot light, more lightweight and small. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't do so well in the consumer tests. However, what they've done um, now is they've taken it back into research and they're working on lots of business applications for it. Um, and so the, the, the headset's becoming more lightweight. The um, connections are becoming more uh, seamless and so forth. So I, I expect a lot of that. HTC, which is a smartphone, um, company is mm-hmm. also working on on technology as are Samsung and Sony. So there's a lot of big electronics players that will um, be working on technology. And what that will do really is, is get the price point down eventually. Right. So th- this stuff is expensive right now. Um, so, you know, being able to invest in it would be maybe beyond the reach of certain companies. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe but- Amazon that seems to fit into their sort of like world mm-hmm. domination path. <laughs> You know, and, and, and especially considering uh, what they want to do in the logistics world, it does make sense. Um, I haven't seen anything on that front yet, but it, it certainly makes sense. Mm-hmm. And to that end, what are some of the potential obstacles to like mass scale yeah. commercialization with this? Yeah, so I already mentioned the, the money. Um, so until there's cheaper uh, or less, you know, more cost effective hardware um, headsets, the software development and, and, and applications won't necessarily follow. So, you know, the developers really need some some good mainstream kind of technologies to develop for. Um, and that's really what Microsoft is trying to do with its developer kit. Mm-hmm. Um, personally speaking, I get sim sickness. I, uh, yeah. I, I have a, a hard time when I put these things on um, with my sort of equilibrium. So that, that will be an issue, I think. Um, also, frankly, I'm also kind of vain. I'm not going to stick one of these big, massive things on my on my face and walk around. Right. Um, plus, they're heavy, right? So it's 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 a classic example of of a technology, and I'm just going to say it that probably was designed with men in mind. Yeah, totally. They're bulky, they're big, they're heavy. Uh, as a woman, I, you know, there might need to be more more pl- appropriate devices for me. If you're not um, sitting inside gaming all day, exactly. Yeah. If you're not a gamer, um, etc. So right now, they're really bulky and 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 not and very intrusive. Yeah, and I know you also mentioned Google Glass as an example of a sort of a very early iteration, but I do remember the first time I stuck one of those on my face, not only the whole aesthetic issue, um, but also the the picture quality was just it was mm. very far away, very small, so we'll be curious to see. It sounds like the visuals are already coming a long way. And then you also mentioned the cost in your story. I see the Rift uh, costs almost six hundred dollars, yep. and sort of yep. the developer-focused HoloLens is three thousand. Yep. So definitely so some you, interesting stuff to watch. You mentioned the the quality of the of the images, and I think a company to watch will be Magic Leap. They have amassed an amazing amount of backing. I think it's like five hundred million at this point, mm. and their the quality of the of the the images they're creating is just absolutely amazing, extraordinarily. They look so real; you don't know they're not real. It's it's quite amazing. Yeah, and I've so, also that reminds me. I've heard of a couple of groups out our way in the Bay Area. I think there's one in Marin that is specifically trying to look at some of these advanced imaging technologies to show people sort of what it might look like if sea levels were rising. So sort mm-hmm. of more of like a nonprofit or advocacy bent, but also seems like it could be relevant. Yeah. So education, that is another application, right? Is is showing the world what different places look like, what different endangered habitats look like without actually having people go there. It can build an appreciation, I think, for the world around us and make us more um, eager as people, as humans, to want to protect some of these places. Mm-hmm. Well, really fascinating stuff, Heather. Thanks so much for, for pushing us to run with the story. And uh, <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks, Lauren.
As usual, we've had a steady stream of visitors coming through the Green Biz office, which you guys will hear about more next week, an interesting meeting I just had about the future of material science. But in the meantime, Joel, you have also been out on the road, and I know you met recently with one of our newest partners, and that is the Huffington Post. Yes, uh, Huffington Post. uh, We haven't talked about this much, but we've been syndicating uh, several stories, three, four, five stories a week that we publish on GreenBiz uh, through Huffington Post. And uh, one of, uh, I think, just my my good friends in this business and, you know, partners in crime is uh, Joe Confino, who came over to HuffPo, uh, literally came over from England uh, last fall after running Guardian Sustainable Business um, in, in the UK and to head up a new division at Huffington Post uh, that, you know, that uh, is really about bringing together a bunch of different coverage around business and technology and science and also sort of solutions-oriented good news. Uh, you know, what's working out there, they call it. Uh, what's working is the name of it. And um, so we're syndicating a little bit now, but the question is, what else can we do? So I was in New York um, at the beginning of this week and uh, went out, sat down, had lunch with uh, Joe Confino, who's executive editor, executive editor there, and Alex Kaufman, who's a senior business editor, to talk about a number of things that we can do together, including uh, uh, some things we'll be talking more about uh, in, in terms of our Verge conference and uh, oh, all kinds of things that I'm not yet ready to announce. But one of the things that emerges is that uh, you know, they are doing more sustainable business coverage and uh, nobody knows yet. And so we're helping to give them uh, a little bit more of a voice in the sustainable business community. And so I sat down with uh, Joe Confino and Alex Kaufman to talk a little bit about um, you know, what's going on at Huffington Post, why sustainability is becoming one of their big new areas of coverage. So, Joe, the coverage of Huffington Post is starting to move towards more sustainability? Well, I moved here about nine months ago with an absolute commitment to refocus all of our coverage, actually across the newsroom and specifically in business around sustainability, um, moved from the UK to the US because I think you know the US is renowned for when it gets something can move very quickly. And I think we had a real sort of turning point in terms of US businesses starting to recognize their responsibilities to society across a full range of issues, whether it's LBGT, whether it's a, a supply chain, whether, you know, across a whole range of issues, human rights. And we want to be the leading media organization at the mainstream level covering these issues. You were recruited, as I recall, by Ariana herself. You met her at Davos, I think. What did she tell you that was compelling to you? She said, what I want to do is reimagine the newsroom around solutions journalism. In other words, let's stop disempowering people. Let's stop creating extra fear and worrying people about the problems of the world. But actually, let's showcase how we can actually transform the world for the better. And she gave me three three things she wanted me to do, to embed sustainability purpose and sort of real sense of meaning into our coverage and that's what I'm here to do. So Alex you're part of the daily uh, coverage here you I see that there's a section called what's working what does that mean what how do you decide what's working? Well you know we decide what's working by doing our due diligence and reporting like we would on any other topic you know when we see uh the problems of the world and some of the major issues that we cover. Uh, part of our instinct isn't just to cover what that is, but ultimately leave the reader at the end of the story with something that can be done about it or something that they can look to uh, for some hope. And we look specifically at these things around not just a quick one-off, uh, you know, Band-Aid type solution. We look for smart, scalable, sustainable solutions that can serve as models for other people that are observing the moves of these companies. So what are you seeing so far? Give me an example of something that you're excited about that you saw that sort of fits that smart, scalable uh, criteria? Uh, One thing that I've been really excited about is sort of the repurposing of big box stores as big sustainability hubs. I mean, uh, we did a really great video on this a few weeks ago 
showing how all of these big box stores throughout the country, which, you know, were once seen as hubs of cannibalizing, you know, local businesses and of just, uh, you know, sort of epicenters of American consumption that are now becoming these beacons of energy sustainability and are ultimately helping to feed more clean energy back into the grid uh, in these towns where they are operating. And so the idea, if if you're successful, is that uh, you'll help other stores or to do that or get consumers to push. What's the action here that you want to see happen? I think the action that I'd like to see happen from our overall coverage is just to have a buildup of these stories that allows people to feel a sense of efficacy when they're shopping because they know who the good guys are just as they know who the, the less sustainable ones are. I think as a site, we've done this a lot with politics and we've kind of, you know, we haven't held back from uh, saying that we think, you know, this politician is saying really good things. We stand by this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, like when Elizabeth Warren talks about financial reform, for instance. And I think that as we cover more companies that are doing bold and brazen things in this area, that uh, will help to arm those consumers with the right kind of information to take their business to those people or support those companies or to push the companies that they are uh, buying things from to do similar things. Joe, you've been here since for six months or so. Um, when we talk in a year from now, what's the story you hope to be able to tell about Huffington Post's profile or success in the realms of sustainability, technology, and the things that you're looking at? I, I think I was talking to Christiana Figueres, who sort of ran the climate change talks, and she was saying, you know, one of the problems with, with an area like this is, she said, if you look at everyone who's really engaged in this, it's about 100,000 people. And we've got to scale that up. We need everyone. You know, there's a, I, I saw something the other day saying, to change everything, we need everyone. And I think what the reason, one of the reasons I moved from The Guardian to The Huffington Post, because The Huffington Post reaches this, has this extraordinary reach of young people and also people who aren't sort of, let's say, The Guardian readers who might know about these issues and already care about them, maybe already be activists. But we need to now go to the next concentric circle of people who need to be educated, who need to be more aware, and who need to be given the opportunity to make a difference. And I, So in a year's time, I want us to be known as you know, the premier site for issues around sustainability. And, and one of the things I've done here is we, we, we brought together a lot of sections. So we've got business, technology, science, green, impact, and good news. Those are all within my realm. And that's about sort of creating the, we talk about collaboration outside, but often there's very little collaboration even within individual newsrooms or between newsrooms. And so I want us to be seen as a place where actually we are collaborating both really well internally, but also sort of working with other media organizations to drive really important change. Meanwhile, we're looking forward to continuing our GreenBiz collaboration with you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this, is a, this is a great example of it where, where you know, two major organizations you know, can work together to actually scale up change and, and be more than the sum of their parts. And you know, that's the great thing about this is media has always been very separate. Why aren't we collaborating? And it's a good model for the rest of the world, too. Um, Joe Confino, executive editor at Huffington Post, and Alex Kaufman, senior editor. What did I get? Senior business editor. Senior business editor at Huffington Post. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks very much, Joel. All right. So Green Biz and the Huffington Post. Keep looking out for our stories on their site and we'll be publishing some of theirs as well. So lots of great sustainability content all around. Last week, we had a guest from across the pond on the podcast when the folks from CDP, formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project, came through the office as part of their Bay Area expansion. Uh, This week, senior writer Barbara Grady followed up on that story and actually went down to a Google office to see what was going on. How's it going, Barbara? Good. How are you, Lauren? Good, good. So you weren't at the Googleplex, but this was sort of Google hosting CDP for their coming out party in the Valley. Does that sound about right? Sort of, yeah. So CDP had its U.S. spring workshop here in Silicon Valley instead of New York, where it's usually held. And they had it on a Google campus in Sunnyvale, which is almost as, like, gee whiz and wonderful as the Mountain View campus. There's all (laughs) sorts of fun things all over it. 
And I think the whole point was to kind of underscore the role of data, kind of big data in carbon reporting and natural capital reporting and that people are realizing we really need to kind of move it into real time and big data is the best way to do that. So was the deal that they're actually embarking on like a partnership with Google or were they just talking about data sort of at a high level? They talked about data at a high level and renewable energy at a high level. I think the partnership at this point was to co-host this meeting with a lot of people and we'll see what happens in the partnership going forward. Mm -hmm. And so what is Google's interest in all of this stuff? So Google has a very strong commitment to 100% renewable power. And that kind of makes a big difference for a company that huge and which has all these huge data centers. So as um, Jim Miller, Vice President of Global Operations, acknowledged, data centers are huge, huge power users. So it's important for Google and all those other tech companies that are doing it, Apple, et cetera, to try to use renewable power instead. He said that Google is almost at 100%. It's like a few years away from that. I have to tell you, I spent my life around IT, and going to a Google data center for the first time is really an awe-inspiring experience. When you see a building that's 12 football fields in size that looks like this, you realize the magnitude and the scale of, of what we built at Google. We think we're about 2% of the world's compute capacity. That doesn't sound like a lot, but when you look at the number of servers installed worldwide, that, that's a significant chunk of, uh, of the world's uh, internet traffic. And we view ourselves as the lifeblood of the internet. Um, to do that, we run the world's largest computer. We run the world's largest supercomputer. We have one of the world's largest private telecommunications networks. We view efficiency as absolutely critical to everything that we do. The best thing about driving efficiency in our data centers is it, it goes straight to the bottom line. So our effort around improving the efficiency of Google, one, it's great for the planet, but two, it also is great for the bottom line. That's how we tend to look at all of our business decisions. Every decision that we make is driven around total cost of ownership. They also just kind of talked about the role of data in helping the world understand environmental impacts. For instance, Rebecca Moore was there. She's the director of Google Earth Engine, and she talked about a project that's really fascinating that a lot of people in the audience liked. And here's what she had to say about it. Comes off the satellite, for example, the Landsat, longest Earth-observing mission ever, more than 40 years, comes off the satellite and goes onto tapes in a vault in South Dakota. U.S. Geological Survey, so it's very secure. Very secure, which is good. But it's not that accessible, right? And many of those pixels on those tapes, you know, had never been actually inspected by a human being. And so we took as a, a challenge uh, for the inspiration of this platform, Google Earth Engine, which we call, it's an analytical engine for the planet, to liberate these big data archives about this changing planet and put it online uh, in Google data centers, co-located the storage of the data, co-located with massive computing resources for extracting information from that imagery. Because these are not just pretty pictures of the, of the planet that you would look at in Google Earth or Google Maps, it's actually data from which you can derive information about a changing planet. And so after we got the entire Landsat archive off, off tape and into Google data centers, we created a, a new data product we call Timelapse. If you go to earthengine.google.com slash timelapse, you'll see the entire Earth, three decades of planetary change anywhere you go. And it's kind of amazing. You can see glaciers retreating, the irrigation of uh, the desert in Saudi Arabia, the creation of the artificial palm islands off Dubai because they wanted more beachfront for tourism, deforestation in the Amazon. Some pretty fascinating sort of macro level stuff going on there. Um, but I'm, I am a little curious, what does that have to do with sort of companies directly disclosing their carbon emissions? That's a good question, Lauren. I think Rebecca was describing just the potential of data, you know, using this macro view of the basically the whole world. But 
also points to what big data can do on a company level. So the real issue in company reporting is what happens in their supply chains. And sometimes companies say, well, it's hard to actually get a grasp on what's happening on the supply chains. But big data allows that because they can not only see what's happening on the ground through such technologies, but also kind of filter through tons of reports that point to the actual realities. It's an interesting space. I know we're hearing a lot more about sort of third-party technology providers that are looking to sort of aggregate all the information that's out there about different suppliers that big companies work with. Um, Though obviously it does seem like there's still a way to go there, especially with the medium or smaller suppliers. Uh, That'll definitely be an interesting thing to watch, though. And another thing that sort of sticks out about all of this is the fact that um, Google's sort of far from alone in some of this work. Um, There are now dozens, at least, of other companies that are making these 100% renewable energy goals. Uh, Facebook is another big one in Silicon Valley that comes to mind. Obviously, Apple sort of the go-to here. And they um, all have big data centers. Exactly. Um, to, I know wind seems to be sort of one of the, the big mechanisms for data centers, but did they talk about anything else in terms of like where this all might be headed? Well, they definitely talked about their investments in wind and solar to garner as much renewable energy as as possible. Mm-hmm. And obviously there, we'll see some of these policy issues because the data centers are sometimes in these uh, lower cost, lower tax jurisdictions uh, that might not have necessarily progressive energy laws. So that's sort of an interesting... There was one really interesting thing that Jim Miller brought up. So Google bought a former coal plant in Alabama because it was going offline And it was huge, and it already had transmission lines. Mm. So they're just going to convert this coal plant to a data center and not have to install transmission lines, which you said cost, you know, tens of millions of dollars, and therefore kind of take out some coal, bring in some uh, renewably powered data center because they're going to use the transmission lines to get power from, like, wind and solar projects they've invested in farther away. So that's just kind of a cool take on it. Yeah, especially with the news about Peabody this week, that whole transition of the fossil fuel infrastructure is going to be very interesting indeed. Well, senior writer Barbara Grady, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Let's turn to the week ahead. Joining me now is GreenBiz.com managing editor Elsa Wenzel. What's up, Elsa? First up, next week, we have GreenBiz Editor-at-Large and retired McDonald's sustainability exec Bob Langert writing about his favorite sustainability success story. Hint, it's the 10-year anniversary of the Amazon Soy Moratorium. That's not Amazon.com, but the Amazon rainforest that we all know and love. We also have a story from you, Lauren, about a company called Covestro, a Bayer spinoff, exploring next-generation materials for the circular economy. And Lou Blaustein of the Green Sports blog is giving us an original three-part series about Land Rover Ben Ainsley Racing. That's the British challenger for the 35th America's Cup. So it's pretty exciting. Part one next week will be about how life cycle assessment will make the entire operation faster greener and leaner speaking of greener and leaner it's earth day next friday we don't normally do much about earth day i guess we want every day to be earth day at green biz but if you do happen to have any interesting news or views to share please write us at editor at greenbiz.com and we will read every pitch or every submission that you send us and give you some feedback thanks Yay, Earth Day. So we've also got a couple of events coming up. If you don't already have your tickets to Verge Hawaii, you should probably get on that because it's coming up June 21st through 23rd in Honolulu. And why would you not want to go to Honolulu for a little summer vacation slash crash course in clean energy? Uh, But before that, next week, we've got a free webcast on April 19th. The topic for that is product stewardship and the challenges of a circular economy because the circular economy is everywhere now. Uh, So check that out. Go to greenbiz.com and click on the events tab at the top of the page. That's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find links to the organization, stories and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. 
Thanks, as always, to our esteemed podcast director, Soraya Melconian. You can always subscribe to Green Biz 350 uh, through all kinds of different subscription podcast subscription mechanisms like iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Of course, you'll always find it every Friday morning, bright and early, on greenbiz.com, and we all love to tell you about it through our daily email newsletter, Green Buzz, go subscribe to that. It's free. Uh, you can also get Green Biz News Daily these days on your iPhone via the Apple News app. But by whatever means necessary, please join us again next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. And send us your feedback, your ideas, your comments, whatever you want, to 350 at greenbiz.com. And don't forget the 30 under 30 uh, out the search that we're doing uh, by April 30th. Send us those uh to submit, S-U-B-M-I-T, at greenbiz.com. For all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. <laughs>